0: I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a situation or a position in which someone asked you to do something and it was assumed that you knew what they were asking you to do. I remember uh, it was my very first day at my very first job. I worked at a place called Laser Island. And uh, it's kind of a place like Chuck E. Cheese where families would go, have birthday parties, and entertain themselves. Well, uh, the owner of this place took very much pride in the fact that we had a clean bathroom. And so much so to the point where he wanted his employees to check the bathroom at least once an hour. And uh, I remember the supervisor looked at me and said, Nick, uh, go check the men's bathroom. And obviously it's your first day, so you're trying to make a good impression. So I said, okay. But I had no idea what that meant. Uh, So I remember walking to the bathroom thinking, like, what am I checking for? Am I checking for trash? Am I checking to see if the toilets are flooded? Like, what does it mean to check the bathroom? Uh, so I walked in the door and the bathroom looked great. I mean, there's, there, in my eyes, there was nothing wrong with the bathroom. So I came back and said, yeah, the bathroom looks great. He said, okay, awesome. Good job, Nick. That's what you want to hear on your first day, right? Good job. Uh, well, five minutes later, uh, one of the other male employees came up to the supervisor and said, man, someone needs to go check the bathroom because uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrong. And so the supervisor looks at me and said, Nick, didn't you check the bathroom? I said, yeah <laughs> and he said okay well this guy's gonna show you what specifically to check for and so apparently checking the bathroom meant to check for uh, the toilet paper to see if you know I had enough toilet paper and paper towel rolls thank you, Oh, ice, nice <laughs> um, but the supervisor assumed that I knew what it meant to check the bathroom and I think that's something we assume a lot of people That's something we tell a lot of people to do, to to live a Christian life, and we have no idea what that means. And I think what's happened because of that is you have people turning the Christian life into a a checklist. Uh, Make sure you come to church on Sundays. Uh, Throughout the week, make sure you try and pray, try and read your Bible. Um, Try not to sin, but if you do, make sure you confess it to the Lord, and just make sure you're back here on Sunday. Uh, so we can repeat the process again. And so you have people uh, coming to church, you have people praying uh, about 21 times a week, uh, right before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have people you know, trying to read their Bible, and you, see, you have these people just checking a list. And this past year, that's something I've been struggling with in myself, is that really all the Lord requires of me? Is that all the Lord has in store for me, this little checklist? That's something I was struggling with in myself. So please turn to First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter 1. Uh, I've titled this message, What the Lord Requires of Me. And in this chapter, you have three things that uh, Peter instructs the people at this time. Uh, a little background on uh, this letter being written. Obviously, we're very familiar with Peter, uh, mainly the, the mistakes that he made. But he's writing to a letter to um, churches um, in, in the in the provinces of, of Asia Minor, uh, which is present-day Turkey today. And this letter would have gone from place to place, being read aloud. And the people that would have heard this letter would have been either uh, Jew or Gentile. These people who are believers, whether they were Jew, from Jewish descent or, or they're Gentile, whether they were citizens or slaves. Uh, you have a big group of people. And if there's one thing we know about this group of people, was the fact that these people were suffering at this time. Uh, They're going through very much tribulation. They're suffering shame. They're suffering pain for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can imagine that for these people, hearing this letter written, you can imagine what's going through their mind. Uh, Me and Justin uh, talked about this a couple months ago. And when you're going through tribulations, when you're going through trials, when you're suffering shame and pain for the Lord's sake, you'd have the tendency to ask the Lord, Lord, where are you? You promised never to leave me. You you promised never to forsake me. Where are you? So it's very interesting that peter's writing this letter to them, and he starts right off in verse six. Uh, this isn't where we'll be uh um, looking at specifically, but he says, In this you greatly rejoice, that now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, Peter constantly is, it refers to suffering and trials and tribulation that these people are enduring, and he's writing to them to encourage them. And so hold your fingers here for, for, uh, in First Peter, but turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, Luke chapter 22, we're just going to look at perhaps some of the mistakes that Peter made. And you can imagine that as he's writing this letter, he's probably thinking back, if only, if only I, I knew what I know now. I probably would have acted differently. Uh, so here we are in Luke chapter 22. Uh, I want to read to you a verse in, in John 13. Uh, this is when the Lord Jesus is, you don't have to turn there, sorry. This is when the Lord Jesus is predicting that Peter would deny him. Uh, and he says, uh, Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered and said to him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter answered, answered him, uh, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Um, and so you, you see here Peter proclaiming to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you right now, if, if that's what following you uh, means for me. Uh, in other places, uh, he says, uh, even if all the other disciples are made to stumble tonight, I won't be. He, he's very bold and, and, and he's, he's very, um, yeah, very bold. But here we are in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 22 and verse 54. This is just after Lord Jesus has been arrested. In verse 44, it says, Having arrested him in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. But Peter followed. At a distance. So we see here, uh, just before this, Peter's making all these bold statements I will die for you, I'll lay down my life for you right now. I will follow you at all stake. And yet we see him following at a distance. So he's kind of keeping his word. He is following the Lord Jesus, but at a distance. And we continue in verse 55, it says Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as uh, he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him, but, but he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And we all know this story. He then goes on to deny the Lord Jesus two more times. But we see, the Lord, we see Peter following the Lord at a distance. But the moment following the Lord means potentially suffering for him, potentially uh, being thrown out of the city, uh, being thought uh, differently by the, by the uh, people around. As soon as it became inconvenient for Peter to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I don't know that man. And I think in the church today, we have so many believers following the Lord Jesus Christ, but at a distance. And as soon as it becomes inconvenient to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you have these people denying the Lord Jesus. You're a Christian? Oh, yeah. But as soon as it means perhaps people thinking of us differently, perhaps when it means us not receiving that job promotion, you have people acting a lot more differently, don't you? And so Peter, as he's writing uh, this letter to this church as they're suffering, you can imagine what's going through his mind. He says, I know these brothers and sisters of mine are suffering, but I don't want them to go through what I went through. And you can imagine that, that as they're hearing this letter from Peter, they can sympathize with Peter knowing that he too went through a situation close to ours. And so he's writing this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ to prevent them from going through the failure that he wants experienced for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to encourage them, he wants them to, to build them up. And so imagine that here you are, you're suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps uh, a loved one was thrown in prison, perhaps um, you lost a loved one, perhaps your business isn't doing well because you are now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you hear this letter uh, being read aloud from Peter. And this is what he says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so here you are, you're suffering, you're experiencing so much shame for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you hear that this letter's come from Peter, and you're saying, Oh man. He's going to have some words of encouragement and comfort for me. Maybe he's going to tell me to, to, to stop doing what I'm doing. Maybe to tell me to, to change a couple things in, in how I'm living so that I can live in an easier way. But instead, you, ha- you hear Peter saying to keep going the way you're going now, but on top of that, to be holy. And so what does the Lord require of us? The first thing mentioned, he, wants, he requires of us um, to be holy. What what does it mean to be holy and to be holy as He is holy? Uh, holiness in reference to God um, always speaks of God um, and His separation from and the supremacy over all of creation. Uh, it also speaks of His majesty and glory, which obviously we cannot attain. Um, it, but uh, on top of that, it also speaks of His holiness, uh, His purity. His spotlessness, which is what we should strive for. Um, Holiness, whenever it speaks of, uh, in reference to man, you have people thinking that holiness comes when you become saved, and that's not necessarily the the, the point that's being made here. Uh, Holiness, in reference to man, always speaks of the withdrawal of oneself from that which is common or unclean, and the consecration of oneself to what is divine, sacred, and pure? Uh, if you remember back in the Old Testament, when the Lord, when the Lord said to the priests, "Be holy, for I am holy," um, they had to consecrate themselves. They had to devote themselves solely to the purpose of sacrificing um, sacrifices to the Lord for the people. And so, you have that same idea: withdrawing yourself. The Levites were withdrawn. They had the specific purpose and role of offering up sacrifices to the Lord. And so, holiness, in reference to us, speaks of the withdrawal of oneself. Um, from that which is common or unclean and the complete devotion to the Lord uh, So once again holiness does not speak of righteousness, but it speaks of sanctification So here he's instructing the people that as they're suffering at this time as they're enduring so much pain and perhaps shame uh, He tells them to be holy to, compl- to to be set apart you can imagine that as you're enduring so much shame from the, from the government, from your friends. You can imagine how these people might have wanted to respond in a violent way. Uh, how these people might want to respond and, and per- perhaps change the way they've been acting. But he tells them to be holy, to be set apart um, as the Lord is um, holy. And so how do we strive for holiness? Uh, keep your finger here. First uh, John chapter 2. 1 John uh, chapter 2, we will be bouncing around a little bit. So how do we strive for holiness? Um, well, the first thing is well, you have to be saved. That's always the number one thing. You have to be saved. You have to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, because apart from Him, um, there's no way that we could attain righteousness or sanctification or be redeemed. Uh, but the second thing, which we see here in 1 John, is we must be obedient. Uh, First John chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My little children, these things are write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know uh, that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Uh, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Um, So we have to be obedient in striving for holiness. We we must be obedient to his word. Uh, And we must strive to live a sinless life. And, And the beautiful thing about this is that he says he who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And a point that was made at at Wednesday night prayer meeting this past week was that the Lord never asks us to do anything that he didn't first do for us. And he never asks us to do anything that we can't do ourselves, and he never asks us to do anything without first giving us the grace and the strength in order to go through it. And so as Peter's writing, writing this letter, and he's telling them to to live holiness, uh, to strive for holiness, to strive to live that sinless life for Christ, Um, you can imagine how they're thinking upon the Lord Jesus Christ and how he himself walked, to walk just as the Lord Jesus walked. So what a beautiful thing that is, that the Lord never asks us to do anything um, that he himself didn't do first. And he always gives us the grace and the strength and the ability to do so. so what is our motivation uh, for living a holy life, for, for being set apart, even if that means us uh, suffering shame, uh, pain, um, all of these little things in life? What is our motivation behind it? And, and obviously, uh, the first thing is that God would receive the glory. If, if you remember in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, oftentimes in his life, his purpose was to glorify the Father in everything he did. He said, I'm not doing these, these, these miracles and performing all these things so that I may receive glory, but that the Father may receive the glory. And so that should always be our first purpose. A prayer of mine that I'm realizing is entering into my prayer life every day is, Lord, just be glorified in my life today. However way possible, be glorified today. Receive the glory in my life today. And that should be our prayer for each and every day, to glorify the Father in all that we do. Um, I think the hymn writer had it right when he said, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life, our redemption to win and opened the life gate that all may go in. To God be the glory, to God be the glory. Um, But also we see in verse 13, he speaks of the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should also be our motivation. Uh, If you are a believer here in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith and trust in him this morning, You have been saved from the penalty of sin, because our penalty that we uh, that we was was really ours was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He bore the penalty for us. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. If you're saved this morning and you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you're also saved from the power of sin, uh, because He who is in us is is uh, stronger than He who is in the world. sin no longer can have its dominion over us because we have the, the Spirit of Christ living in us. And be, because of that power, we are able to overcome sin. And in the future, which is what I believe this is referring to, is that we will be saved from the presence of sin. Uh, there will be no sin in heaven. And if you think about in light of eternity, Peter's asking the people here to be holy now, to live a sanctified life now. And I've, I've said this before, but we always look at our life as if it's so huge and so significant. When really the, the reality is, I know some of us are actually, here are actually older than this, but the reality is you might only live to be 80 if you're lucky. So 80 years in comparison to eternity is nothing. And yet we're so concerned with, with the little time that we have here on earth. But here Peter is instructing them to rest your hope fully upon the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that day when we will uh, be saved from the power of sin. Uh, So that should be our motivation uh, behind living a um, holy life. Um, In in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, uh, this is when uh, Paul is speaking of... um, enduring suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ, but I think it could be applied here as well. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Um, the afflictions we endure today, which is but for a moment, in comparison to eternity, it's but for a moment. And we should keep, keep our eyes um, on that and keep that in mind. Um, Okay, so the second thing, we see that the Lord requires us to be holy. The second thing that is mentioned in verse 17 is that the Lord requires us to live fearfully. In verse 17, it says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He says to conduct throughout the the time of your stay here in fear, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, uh, so what does it mean to live fearfully? What's funny is uh, in the church today, you often hear people quote, quoting verses about how uh, we shouldn't fear. Um, we often quote Joshua 1.9, Do not be afraid, nor be discouraged, for I am with you wherever you may go. God is with us, there's no need to fear. Um, we'll quote uh, 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And we'll go on and on and we'll hold on to these verses about how there's no need to be afraid. And obviously, these are speaking about the physical things on earth. But we often forget that there is a reason for us to hold a healthy, reverential fear for the Lord in our lives. Um, and so, the Lord tells us that we ought to fear some things. In Proverbs 9:10, which is probably the most popular verse, uh, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and and knowledge of the holy, and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding." In Philippians 2:12, he says, "To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Um, and here in uh, First Peter, he tells us to conduct ourselves in fear. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Um, the fear of the Lord is to denote reverential awe. The fear of the Lord is in fact the definition of true religion. Um, I found this, this definition of uh, the fear of the Lord. It says, living in the fear of God is not craven fear or forced submission. It is a sensitive fear, in awareness of his first sign of grieving. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is the fear of the Lord? It is living in sensitivity to his spirit. Living in sensitivity to his spirit. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a situation where, or perhaps you were doing something where uh, you knew you shouldn't be doing, or you were somewhere where you knew you shouldn't probably have been, and you start to have this this feeling. For me, it's always, I almost get embarrassed. (laughs) I never know, like, how to handle it. I always get embarrassed. I'm probably, you know, bright red and, I just get so uncomfortable and I don't react well to these situations. Um, But that's the the Spirit of the Lord tugging on my heart. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be here. And if I continue to to do what I'm doing, or if I continue to to go to these places, uh, the, the, the danger we have in that is that our conscience then becomes used to that sin. And so if I continue in this sin, I'm no longer going to have that tugging. Um, a verse, uh, the Lord Jesus says, I will not, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Um, and if he's tugging on your heart, and yet you just keep on going, you keep on going. You say, Lord, I, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm just going to keep on going one more time. Okay, now one more time, I'm going to keep on going. Eventually, we're not going to feel the tugging of the heart anymore. And that's the danger we have in it. So uh, what does it mean to, be, to, to uh, live in the fear of the Lord? To be sensitive to uh, the Spirit, but also to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Um, it's not necessarily just the Lord leading you not to do something, but perhaps the Lord leading you to do something. I remember uh, it was the, the Friday of the spring conference this past year. Um, I was on my way to the, the conference. I was going to be an hour early, but I got a phone call saying, you know, we need you to get here as soon as you can so you can greet people at the door but of course my sisters left the gas tank empty so I had to stop for gas on the way and uh, there I am getting gas, I'm trying to hurry and I remember this this guy came up to me and you could just see the embarrassment in his eyes but he said you know I live probably a mile away, I have no gas in my car can you just just give me a little bit of gas and instead of giving him money you never know what they'll do with it so I, I, I I put it on his pump so that he could—he had to put it in his car. And so, so there he is pumping, and I'm there pumping. I'm trying to hurry, I'm trying to hurry. And I, I remember it was like the Lord made it so clear to me. He said, Nick, go give the gospel to this guy. Go tell him about me. Do something. And I remember it, like it was so clear in my mind that that is what the Lord was asking me to do. But I started making up excuses in my mind. I'm like, well, I'm going to be late for the spring conference. I'm only going to be an hour early. Goodness, an hour early. Um, I'm going to be late, you know, I have all these responsibilities, I have this and I have that. And it just came to a realization that I just didn't want to. And I remember driving out of that gas station just feeling so embarrassed, so ashamed. It was like, Lord, you made it so clear to me that I should have done that and I didn't. But I remember praying I said, Lord, please just lead someone else in his life that, will, that won't make the same mistake as me, that will actually give him the gospel. And we had to remember that when the Lord is leading us to do something, He's leading us to do something because he wants to bless us. And uh, there's no, there's no um, second thought in my mind that had I really given the gospel to this guy, I would have been blessed in some way, whether it was seeing him saved or just us having a friendship with someone. Maybe we would have come to the spring conference. Who knows? But we would have been blessed. And I missed out on the blessing because I was not um, sensitive to the Spirit's leading. So we must be sensitive to the Spirit's... Um, to the, to the Spirit and to the Spirit's leading. Um, but then we have verses like in Romans eight fifteen. It says, for you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, the amazing thing is we are able to re- enjoy a relationship with the Lord where we can view him as a father, as a daddy, a relationship that really the children of Israel never were able to enjoy with the Lord. Uh, and so we must be sensitive to his leading. Um, okay, I'll keep going. I have more, but I'll keep going. Um, okay, so, so how do I know if I truly fear the Lord? This is a test that I want you to know that I failed. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 1, we see that holiness and the fear of the Lord actually go together. We see perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So do you have a a desire to be obedient to him and live a life that is sanctified for him? Oftentimes, I do not. Uh, We see in uh, Proverbs 8, 13, it says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Uh, So do you find yourself speaking in perverse ways? Do you find yourself hating pride and arrogance or are you self-proud and arrogant? Um, oftentimes I am proud and, and very arrogant and so once again I fail um, if we truly fear the Lord we are driven to obey him in Ecclesiastes 12 13 Solomon says fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all um, so based on those things can you say that you fear the Lord I like I said I, I failed that test um, oftentimes I'm disobedient to him um, Oftentimes I'm proud and arrogant. And I don't I don't hate evil, as he says in, in Proverbs. Uh, the, the, the scary thing about it in, in Psalms 147 and verse 11, it says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. And as I read that, you know, it kind of scared me. I took a step back and, and I thought, like, what does the Lord think when he sees me, when he looks at me, what, is, what, what does he think? Is he draw, my fear is that when he looks upon me, he's drawn to just be so sad, to, to mourn really, to suffer so much grief because I'm not living the way I should be living and so on. So when the Lord looks upon you, is he driven to have pleasure? Does he look at you and say, man, I just love watching this person. He fears me, and he is so obedient to me. You can tell that he loves me. I could, I could just sit here and watch this guy all day. Or is he drawn to uh, suffer grief? So what does the, the Lord, does he find pleasure in us? I, I, I always have this hymn on my mind, um, he says, I gave my, I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and raised up from the dead. Mm. I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given me? What hast thou given me? I gave my, gave my life for thee, what hast thou given me? And so when the Lord looks upon us, does he find pleasure? Does he see that uh, we are so loving and fearful of him and obedient towards him? Uh, so why should we live in the fear of the Lord? Uh, here we are in First Peter, and in verse 18, he says, he says conduct yourselves uh, throughout the time of your stay here in fear, and, he says, he, and then he gives a reason why. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Um, I'm a very big sports fan, probably uh, too much so. Um, But uh, last year, there is a uh, right fielder for the Miami um, Marlins, and his name is Giancarlo Stanton, and he he signed a contract with this team. It was the biggest contract in. All of sports history. It was a contract for 13 years, and it was worth 325 million. And I remember uh, that was a that was a big deal. You, you know you witness history of a, of a man being paid way too much. Um, and and so here he is at the the at the uh, the, inter- at the, uh, the press the day he signs. And I remember you know a reporter raises his hand and he says, "Okay, what's your question?" And the question was really. Just mind-blowing, really. He says, he starts by saying, Gene Carlos Stanton, I don't know if you know this, but the average income of the American's salary for each year is about $50,500. That's the average income. And he says, I don't know if you realize this, but when you signed this contract, the Miami Marlins will pay you every day more than what the average American makes in a year crazy. So every year he's gonna make more than fifty thousand dollars every day. And so you think about that and you think, man that's crazy. And So the, the reporter then asked him, he said, now if you put it in those terms, does that any, add any pressure to you? And if, of course the guy lies and said, oh no, you know, uh, but his, his response is very interesting. He says, I'm going to approach each and every day as if I don't have a contract and I'm trying to earn one. Uh, the problem you have in sports is oftentimes you have um, athletes who will, who will perform very, very well in the, year, in the last year of their contract so that they can get a very big contract the next year but then they, they'll stop playing so hard. And so Stanton's response was I'm just going to approach every day as if I don't have my contract. And when you think about guys like that getting paid that much money, Peter here he, he blows that contract out of the water and says, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, those useless things, $325 million, you weren't redeemed with that, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And I think oftentimes in our life, if we knowingly live in disobedience to him, even though we know that we were redeemed at such a high price, and yet we continue to live in sin the way we ought not to live, we were putting such a low cost on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I know I was redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but so what? You know, I'm able to go out and, and live in disobedience. I can do all of these things because I'm redeemed. And if you're unwilling to hand your life to the Lord and say, Lord, be glorified today, whatever that means, be glorified, do something in my life today and you're unwilling to do that, then you're really putting just such a low price on the Lord saying, yes, Lord, you redeemed me. Yes, you shed your blood for me, but I still wanna do, do me today, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. So we see oh, very quickly, we see that the Lord requires us to live a holy life, a life uh, fearful, uh, fearfully devoted to him, sensitive to his spirit and his spirits leading and the, the last thing we see is that the Lord requires me to love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 23, he says, I'm sorry, verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently and with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Um, that, so that's... So here he's telling them to love one another sincerely, fervently, and in purity. This is a, a thought you have continually. Uh, turn over to chapter 3 and verse 8 really quickly. We'll just read all of them. Uh, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and, cur- and courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for, rev- for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, know that you knowing that you were called um, to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So we see that we, in chapter one, we're called to love one another sincerely, fervently, and in purity. In chapter three, we're to be of the same mind, to love as brothers, uh, um, in a tender-heartedly way, um, in a very courteous way. Um and you have to, once again, you have to keep in mind that these people are suffering at this time. Okay, so as he's instructing them, uh we see in in One more, in chapter 5, and verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And this is the word of comfort he gives in verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. I think a lie the devil always feeds us when we're going through difficult times is that Really, uh, there's no one else going through this time. There's no one else that can really sympathize with you. And basically what it does is it, it makes us kind of hold it to ourselves and not share it with one another. Uh, the beautiful thing is that the Lord tells us to love one another and to bear one another's burdens, to share our struggles and how we are suffering for the Lord together so that we may get each other through it together. But oftentimes, when you look at the life of the Lord Jesus, everything he went through, he was alone. He was alone. Stay here and pray while I go over there, he said to his disciples. And it was there that he would sweat these great drops of blood. He was alone. And he doesn't ask us to be alone. He says to love one another, share your struggles with one another, bear one another's burdens. You're not the only one going through this. Uh, Turn over. This will be the last verse we look at. I promise in Hebrews Hebrews in chapter 3 I'll never forget that the first time I read this verse mr. Dixon read it to us while he was teaching our high school class and he had heard of an assembly that um, was really struggling uh, really struggling you have a lot of people just struggling with various things and the young people um, Being a young person, you always think there's not much that you could do, but they took this verse to heart, and it really changed the assembly. But actually, we'll we'll start in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 3. He says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Um, Remember, in going through trials and tribulations, you might have the tendency and the temptation to just deny the Lord altogether, as Peter did. But he says in verse 13, but exhort one another every Sunday. No. Daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Daily, every day, we should be comforting one another, building one another up, saying, how are you struggling, brother? How are you struggling, sister? How can I pray for you today? Is there anything that I can do? That's funny. Oftentimes, you know, I'll go to Justin's house, and I'll tell him, you know, my struggles, and he said, man, I was going through that last year. (laughs) And so he's able to give me advice, but we have all you have people suffering, struggling, maybe not suffering shame and pain for the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're suffering in their own way going through these trials of life. And the problem we have in the church today is we're going through these things and we hold it to ourselves. We hold it to ourselves. And really we have to share it with one another so that we may exhort one another daily while it is still called today. Uh, and if you're going through trials and temptation and suffering for Christ uh, just keep in mind uh, you're not alone. We're all hurting. I think the, the, there's a danger in thinking that, you know, you come to church and seems like, man, everything is going great at this assembly. Oftentimes, you know, I, I lead, lead to question that one. Like, is, is everything really going great at this assembly or are people just holding on to things and keeping them to themselves? I think that's a tendency we have in the church today. So the encouragement we have this morning is to live a holy life. A life completely devoted to the Lord in the service of him. Uh, to live in a fearful, reverential way towards him. To be sensitive towards him. Um, towards his spirit. And towards the leading of his spirit. And to love one another. To love one another. And, and it is a very difficult thing to strive to live a holy life. To fear the Lord it is a very difficult thing. And that's why I believe Peter then says to love one another. To help one another through this. Because you can't do it by yourself. And we aren't asked to. The Lord was asked to, but we aren't. So praise the Lord for that. Um, May we um, have the desire to um, not only talk the talk, but to also walk the walk. And in Galilee, uh, Jim McCarthy would always tell us that talk is cheap. Uh, Talk is cheap. And at uh, Snipe, a youth group I help out with in, in youth group, we often play sports. And there's this kid, his name is Cameron, and he loves to talk. He loves to talk, and he'll talk so much smack like he's the best player on the court or field. And uh, I always go out to him, I say, Cameron, let your game do the talking. Let, you, let your playing do the talking is what I tell him. And it's the same for us. We got to walk the walk. Not only be a Christian on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday as well. Um, let's pray. Our dearly Father, we are so thankful for your love towards us, for your mercy, for your grace. Father, we're so thankful for your son and all the blessings that we have in him. Uh, Father, blessings that uh, we are not even aware of in heaven, storing, uh, waiting for us in heaven. We're so thankful for him and the fact that uh, he willingly came down. He willingly suffered for us in our place all alone. Father, we think of how he gave his life for us, and really the only worthy response of us towards him is to to willingly give up our life for him. Father, we thank you that you don't ask us to do things that we aren't able to do ourselves, but Father, you give us the grace and the strength to do so. Father, we ask that you would also give us the desire to live a life for you. Father, that we would wake up every day seeking for ways that we might glorify you in our lives today. Father, we would just lift up this assembly to you as uh, many of us are struggling, perhaps it's known, perhaps it's unknown. Father, we would just ask that you would comfort each and every one of us. Father, that we would truly bear one another's burdens. Father, the only life living is a life lived for you. And so Father, we just ask that we would take that to heart. So Father, we just ask you bless us in this week. Father, we ask that you would give us uh, opportunities to glorify you in our life by spreading the gospel. And so, Father, we just commit this time to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.